Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Innal hamdalillah nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nastaghfiruh wa na'udzu billahi min shururi anfusina wa min sayyiati a'malina may yahdihillahu fala mudilla lahu wa may yudlilhu fala hadiya lahu wa ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wahdahu la sharika lahu wa ashhadu anna muhammadan 'abduhu wa rasuluhu sallallahu alayhi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallama tasliman kathira amma ba'd. My dear brothers and sisters, assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So tonight is the last session of the Ha'iyah of Ibn Abi Dawood, the last session in the Aqidah class. So we have quite a bit of stuff still to cover, but we pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes it easy. So let's start with the recitation of the verses, and then we will take it from there. So Munib, you're going to read from وَلَا تَكْفُرْنَا أَهْلَ الصَّلَاةِ all the way till the end, inshaAllah. قال الناظم رحمنا الله وإياه ولا تكفرن أهل الصلاة وإن عصوا فكلهم يعصي وذو العرش يصفحوا ولا تعتقد رأي الخوارج إنه مقال لمن يهواه يبدي ويفضحوا لا تكن مرجيا لعوبا بدينه ألا إنما المرجي بالدين يمزحوا وقل إنما الإيمان قول ولية وفعل على قول النبي مصرحوا وينقص طورا بالمعاصي وتارة بطاعته ينمي وفي الوزن يرجح ودع عنك آراء الرجال وقولهم فقول رسول الله أولى وأشرح ولا تكن من قوم تلهوا بدينهم فتطعن في أهل الحديث وتقدح إذا ما اعتقدت الدهر يا صاح هذه فأنت على خير تبيت وتصبح And do not make takfir of those who pray even if they commit sins since all of them commit sins, while the owner of the throne forgives graciously. And do not hold a belief like that of the Khawarij, for it is a position held by only those who desire it, and it is a destructive and disgraceful. And do not be a murji, one who plays games with his religion. Surely the murji is joking about the religion. And say Iman consists of statements, intentions, and actions according to the explicit statement of the Prophet and it decreases sometimes due to disobedience, uh, disobedience and sometimes because of obedience it grows and on the scale it will outweigh other things. And keep yourself from the opinions of people and their stances since the stance of the Messenger of Allah is more befitting and comforting to the chest. And do not be from those who play games with their religion attacking the people of hadith and reviling them. If you keep the belief contained within this poem all your life, O my companion, you will be upon goodness day and night. khair. Fantastic. So the first issue we get to right away is that uh, Abu Bakr ibn Abi Dawud, he's talking about making takfir and how you cannot make takfir of the people of the Qibla and how you cannot make takfir based upon sins, based upon sins. So let's take uh, number one, the ruling on hukum tariq as-salah. What is the ruling on the one that abandons the prayer? What is the ruling on the one that abandons the prayer? As is usual with the topic of fiqh, we will talk about where there is consensus, then we will talk about where there is a difference of opinion. In terms of where there is a matter of consensus, the scholars have all agreed upon, if someone makes the intention never to pray again, or if he fights the prayer and says, I don't want to pray, then this person has left the fold of Islam. Then this person has left the fold of Islam. And this is mahallul ittifaq, that there's, you know, the scholars agreed upon this issue. Where they disagreed is what if an individual stops praying out of laziness? What if an individual stops praying out of laziness? And this is where the scholars differed. So the vast majority of the scholars from the Madahib, from them was Imam Malik, from them was Imam al-Shafi, from them was Imam Abu Hanifa, they said such an individual 
is still within the realm of Islam, but he has committed a major sin. He's still within the realm of Islam, but he has committed a major sin. The opinion of Imam Ahmad and the opinion of the scholars of Hadith was the opposite. They said that such an individual, if he leaves off the Salah intentionally, even though it may out of be, be out of laziness, that he knows it's time for Salah right now, yet he intentionally does not pray, then this person has left the fold of Islam. Then this person has left the fold of Islam. From the poet's opinion, what seems clear is that he was of the, of the opinion of the latter. He was with the Hanabila and with the scholars of Hadith. With the scholars of Hadith. Now what we want to look at is what are their proofs? What are their proofs? So we'll mention several Hadith and several Ayat to discuss their proofs. The first Hadith is the Hadith in Bukhari 391. Hadith in Bukhari 391. The Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam says, "Man salla salatana wa akala dhabihatana wa istaqbala qiblatana fa huwa muslimun lahu ma lana wa alayhi ma alayna." The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam in this hadith, he is telling us who the Muslim is, who the Muslim is. He says, "Whoever prays our prayer and eats our meat, meaning eats our dhabiha, and he faces our qibla, then this individual is a Muslim. Then this individual is a Muslim." So he mentions three things over here. Number 1, prays our prayer eats our meat, and he faces our Qibla. Now particularly for those people who are very strict on, on eating the biha, you know, this is like a very strong hadith for them. That the Prophet is making it very, very clear that you have to eat like the biha meat. But obviously, you know, we're not going to get into that right now. But I just thought it's a good hadith to know for those people who like to make that argument. So he mentions three things over here. Praying our prayer, eating our the biha, and facing our Qibla. Facing our Qibla. فَهُوَ muslimun. Then he is the one who is Muslim. لَهُ مَا لَنَا وَعَلَيْهِ مَا عَلَيْنَا that for, for in terms of his rights, he will have the same rights that we have. In terms of his responsibilities, he will have the same responsibilities that we have. So this is the first thing that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, makes clear. Number two, we have the verse in the Quran in Surah At-Tawbah, verse number 11. Surah At-Tawbah, verse number 11. فَإِن تَابُوا وَأَقَامُوا الصَّلَاةَ وَآتُوا الزَّكَاةَ فَإِخْوَانُكُمْ فِي الدِّينَ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala over here is talking about the Quraysh. That if they were to repent, meaning that leave the shirk that they were upon, and establish the prayer and give their zakah, then they would become your brothers in faith. Then they would become your brothers in faith. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes it very, very clear that after they abandon their shirk and they establish the prayer and they give their zakah, they have now entered the faith of Islam. They have now entered into the faith of Islam. So this makes it very clear that even Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that the kuffar would have to establish the salah in order to enter into Islam. In order to enter into Islam. Hadith number three. This is the hadith in Sahih Muslim, hadith number 82. Sahih Muslim, hadith number 82. That between a man and disbelief is the abandonment of the prayer, is the abandonment of the prayer. And you can't get more explicit than this, subhanAllah. That here the Prophet says between a man and disbelief is the abandonment of the prayer. The reverse understanding of this, that as long as a man is still praying, then he is still a believer. As long as a man is still praying, then he is still a believer. And I want to give you two more narrations and then we'll move on to the, to the next point inshallah. The next narration, this is found in the Sunan of At-Tirmidhi 2622. Sunan of At-Tirmidhi 2622. And this is an important hadith where the Prophet sallallahu says, مَنْ حَافَظَ عَلَيْهَا كَانَتْ لَهُ نُورًا وَبُرْحَانًا وَنَجَاحْ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ وَمَنْ لَمْ يُحَافِظْ عَلَيْهَا لَمْ يَكُنْ لَهُ نُورٌ وَبُرْحَانٌ وَلَا نَجَاحْ that the Messenger of Allah in this hadith, he says that whoever protects the prayer, then he will have a light and a proof and success on the Day of Judgment. He will have a light, proof and success on the Day of Judgment. 
And whoever does not protect the prayer, then he will have no light and he will have no proof and he will have no success. But rather, he will be raised on the Day of Judgment with Qarun, Fir'aun, Haman, and Ubay ibn Khalaf. And Ubay ibn Khalaf. Meaning like pretty much the worst of creation. The worst of creation. So these are like very, very strong proofs in terms of the hadith and ayat from the Quran that those scholars that held the opinion that the one that abandons the salah out of laziness, you know, they have like pretty strong proofs, subhanAllah. These are pretty explicit. And the icing on the cake, this is the statement of Abdullah ibn Shaqiq that's also narrated in Tirmidhi. So Abdullah ibn Shaqiq, he's talking about the belief of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. He says, كَانَ أَصْحَابُ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمْ لَا يَرَوْنَ شَيْئًا مِنَ الْأَعْمَالِ تَرْكُهُ كُفْرٌ غَيْرَ الصَّلَاةِ That the companions of the Prophet sallallahu did not consider the abandonment of any act to be disbelief with the exception of salah, with the exception of salah. And what he's referring to over here means that they all agreed upon the issue. So some of the companions did uh, view the abandonment of zakat to be disbelief, like Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu did. But what he's talking about over here is that the, the companions of the Prophet were in pretty much consensus that anyone that abandons the salah, that they didn't view the abandonment of any action to be an act of disbelief, other than as-salah, other than as-salah. And this is mentioned in at tirmidhi 2622, 2622. So this is, you know, the, the, the proof that they're coming with. Now, in terms of theory versus practice. Theoretically, it's very good to know what is the ruling on the one that abandons the prayer out of laziness. Because this is, like when we ourselves get lazy with our salah, these ayat, these ahadith are there to remind us. These ayat and ahadith are there to remind us. So theoretically, it's very good for us to know these things because it's a part of our religion, it's a part of our fiqh, part of our aqidah that we need to know this. But from a practical standpoint, are these the type of ahadith that you want to use when you know someone isn't praying? When you know someone isn't praying? And most of the times I would say, these aren't the hadith and the ayat that you want to begin with. That you know, if you don't pray, you're like the Quraysh. If you don't pray, the Prophet said you're a kafir. If you don't pray, the Prophet said you're going to be raised with Fir'aun and Haman on the Day of Judgment. Right? You know, it makes you feel self-righteous at that time. And that's not what you want to try to achieve. The general principle when someone is in praying, you want to make tawbah and salah easy for them. You want to make tawbah and salah easy for them. So you let them know that, look, you know, five daily prayers are compulsory upon you. Start off with whatever you can. Let them start off with whatever you can and let them get into the habit and ritual of, of praying salah. And get them into the habit of understanding the salah. You know, not just doing like the actions, but understanding what salah is. And you'll notice that individuals, once they understand what the salah is and the significance of it, and having a conversation with Allah in Surah Fatiha, and your sins being forgiven in Ruku and Sajda, it goes a lot further than using these types of hadith to put them down. So that's the difference between theory and practice. That know the theory behind it and use it upon yourself. But when it comes to using it upon other people, take a much softer, milder approach towards getting them to pray. The next thing we look at, وَإِنْ عَصَوْ is that even if they commit sin, so as long as a person is praying, we cannot make takfir of them based upon sins. Based upon sins. And now what we want to look at is what is the difference between a sin and kufr? What is the difference between a sin and kufr? And how do you recognize the difference between the two? So kufr, it will have three main branches to it. Kufr will have three main branches to it. Kufr, nifaq, and shirk. Kufr, nifaq, and shirk. Okay? All three of these are used as, synonym, as synonyms from time to time. They're used as synonyms from time to time. What I mean by that is that nifaq will sometimes refer to kufr, but kufr will not necessarily you know, imply nifaq, right? Likewise, 
Shirk will imply kufr, but kufr won't necessarily always imply shirk. Kufr won't necessarily imply shirk. So nifaq and shirk will always return to kufr, but kufr will not always necessarily come back to nifaq and shirk. So that's the relationship between those three words and how sometimes they can be synonymous. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking about the mushrikeen or he's speaking about the munafiqeen in the Quran or he's speaking about the kuffar and the kafirin in the Quran, then generally the ruling upon all three of them is that they are disbelievers. The ruling on all three of them is they are disbelievers. Now how do you recognize if something is kufr, shirk or nifaq? then the Prophet wasallam or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have to call it that, have to call it that. And the general ruling is that if anything is called kufr, shirk or nifaq, then this is something that will take you and expel you out of the religion. Then that is the general ruling, that it is something that will take you and expel you out of the religion. And there are very, very few exceptions to this. Very, very few exceptions to this. So like we know, riya is called minor shirk. Right? If someone falls into riya, it doesn't take them outside the fold of Islam. The Prophet ﷺ, as we'll come to see later on, he called fighting another Muslim an act of kufr. But this is an act of kufr that doesn't take you outside the fold of Islam. Likewise, the, hip, the characteristics of the hypocrites are four in one hadith. Just because a person has these characteristics, it doesn't mean that they've become from the munafiqeen. So the general rule is, it'll take you outside the fold of Islam until you have a proof to prove otherwise. Until you have a proof to prove otherwise. Then when we talk about sins, Sin is anything that is in disobedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, either in acting or in abandoning. Anything that is in disobedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, either in acting or in abandoning. What does this mean exactly? In terms of acting, anything that is haram that you do, then it's an act of disobedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In terms of abandoning, then anything that is compulsory upon you that you to do, and you abandon it, then you're also sinful over here. Then you're also sinful over here. Okay, so that is what sin is. It is to disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala either through uh, implementing or through abandoning. Either through implementing or through abandoning. Sins are also divided into two categories. Major sins and minor sins. Major sins and minor sins. Does anyone remember how we differentiate between major sins and minor sins? Fantastic, that's number one. That if there's a had punishment, then this is considered a major sin. Anything that has a had punishment in this world, then this is considered a major sin. How else do we differentiate between major and minor sins? Go ahead. Fantastic. So there's a punishment from the hellfire specifically for that sin that is mentioned. Then this is considered a major sin in Islam. This is considered a major sin in Islam. Fantastic. The curse of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or the anger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So these three things, if there's a had punishment or if there's a specific punishment that is specified in the hereafter for that act, or if the curse of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and anger are upon that individual or that act, then this is when a sin becomes a major sin. In all other instances, it is considered minor sin. It is considered a minor sin. What is the difference between the two in terms of Tawbah? What is the difference between the two in terms of Tawbah? In terms of a major sin, then major sins require specific acts of Tawbah. They require specific acts of Tawbah. You have to specifically seek Allah's forgiveness for that sin and abandon it and feel sorry about it and follow it up with good deeds and follow it up with good deeds. Whereas minor sins, even though, I mean, they're not minor in the, in the sense that, you know, anything in transgressions against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is significant, but in terms of, of, of minor sins, then the good deeds that we do will naturally wipe them out, will naturally wipe them out. So even if there's certain minor sins that you deem seek forgiveness for, 
then out of the mercy and you know generosity of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgives those minor sins due to the good deeds that we do, due to the good deeds that we do. So now, he's saying that as long as a person establishes the salah, then you cannot make takfir of him based upon sin. Now, based upon this statement, what can we make takfir of a person for? On what basis can we say that such and such person is a disbeliever? The scholars have mentioned four main conditions. That if these conditions are met, then this is when a person becomes a disbeliever. Number one, he has to do an act which is explicitly considered kufr. He has to do an act which is explicitly considered kufr, right? An act which is explicitly considered kufr, that he, you know, calls himself other than uh, a Muslim. He calls himself openly that he is a Christian, a Jew, or an atheist, or whatever. This is an act of kufr. Or he curses the Quran, or he belittles the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. These are all acts of disbelief, right? So he has to do an act which is explicitly considered an act of disbelief. Number two is you have to take away the impediments. You have to take the take away the impediments of takfir. When scholars talk about impediments. This is where a lot of difference of opinion comes. But what they generally refer to is a lack of knowledge. A lack of, under, uh, lack of knowledge, not that, you know, uh, of, of what, you know, the, the basics of the deen are, but in something that isn't known by necessity. In something that isn't known by necessity. And the most explicit hadith in this is the hadith of Abu Waqid al-Layfi, where he says that we were with the Prophet sallallahu new to Islam. And we said to the Messenger of Allah, Oh Allah, make for us a tree to seek blessings from, just like the Quraysh have a tree to seek blessings from. And the Prophet ﷺ said that they had said an act just like the people of Musa did when they said, make for us a calf just like they have a calf. So he called this an act of disbelief, but they didn't become disbelievers because they were new to Islam. So there's an impediment of knowledge. There's the impediment of knowledge. And that is what impediment generally means. Number three, is that they, have, they should have no misunderstanding about te the text. No misunderstanding about the text. So what we call ta'wil, meaning they have an understanding of the text, which, you know, is very far-fetched, but it is plausible, but it is plausible. So they shouldn't have any ta'wil of the text. They shouldn't have any ta'wil of the text. Then the fourth and last thing is that it is important to understand that takfir should only be done by the people of knowledge. The average person should not run around making takfir of people, right? The average person has no basis in this whatsoever. Why, what is the wisdom behind that? The wisdom behind that is that when you make takfir upon an individual, this is a legal ruling in Islam. You have now expelled this person outside the fold of Islam, and what you have implied is that when this person dies, you will not pray his janazah. This person is not allowed to be inherited from, and he's going to be buried with the disbelievers. Now when you look at these three things, they're very heavy things, right? No janazah upon him, no inheritance, buried with the disbelievers. So that is why you can see the severity that it should only be done by the people of knowledge and not by the average person, not by the average person. For the average person, he doesn't need to know is such and such person a believer or a disbeliever, right? They just need to look at the, the rulings that the people of knowledge have given. Just look at the rulings that the people of knowledge have given. When we talk about no more impediments left, this is what we call in the Arabic language, Iqamatul Hujjah, that you've established proof against the people. So you cannot, you know, just make the, you cannot expel people out of the religion without telling them why they've fallen into disbelief, why they've fallen into disbelief. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells explicitly, وَمَا, وَمَا, وَمَا كُنَّ مُعَذِّبِينَ حَتَّى نَبْعَثَ رَسُولًا That we will never punish a people 
until we've sent them a messenger, until we've sent them a messenger, until they've sent them a messenger. Now what we want to look at is, what is the proof from the Qur'an that a person can commit a major sin and he will not be expelled outside the fold of Islam, okay? So that's what we're looking at right now. What is the proof from the Qur'an that a person can perform a major sin and he will not be expelled outside the fold of Islam? Verse number one, Surah Al-Tahreem, verse number eight. Surah Al-Tahreem, verse number eight. I want you to understand this verse, and then I want you to tell me where the shahid, or the operative word and sentence is in this verse. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, tubu ilallahi tawbatan nasuha. Right? O you who believe, repent to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, a sincere and pure repentance. Repent to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, a pure and sincere repentance. Okay? Now understanding this verse in English now, where in this verse do we get the proof that the one that commits a major sin has not left the fold of Islam? Is this part? Sorry? Is this part of There's this part of the verse. Sorry? There is a tawbah here, fantastic. But that doesn't prove much until you understand the, the first part of it. Fantastic. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the people of Iman that if they were to commit a sin, then they should repent to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not differentiate in terms of tawbah for major sins or for minor sins. This tawbah is, is generally for all of the believers, for all of the believers that they repent to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive them. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala called them people of Iman and then tells them that if you were to repent, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive you. That's very general. Someone may say, you know what? That's too vague, too ambiguous. Let's get into something more specific. The hadith of the Prophet ﷺ found in Al-Bukhari, where the Prophet ﷺ, he says, سِبَابُ الْمُسْلِمِ فِسْكٌ وَقِتَالُهُ كُفْر وَقِتَالُهُ كُفْر The Prophet ﷺ, he says that cursing a believer is an act of fisk. It is an act of transgression, okay? Fighting a believer is an act of kufr, is an act of kufr. Okay? Now, when you understand this, that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, is saying that fighting him is an act of kufr, let's move on to the verse where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says, وَإِن طَائِفَتَانِ مِنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ اِقْتَتَلُوا This is Surah Hujurat, verse number 9. Surah Hujurat, verse number 9. That if two groups from the believers were to fight one another, then, you know, rectify between them. Then rectify between them. So the operative phrase over here is that even though these two groups are fighting one another, and the Prophet ﷺ said, and fighting a believer is kufr, yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is still referring to them as believers, is still referring to them as believers. So now, even when a person does an act of minor kufr, this is still considered a major sin in Islam. This is still considered a major sin in Islam. So here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is affirming that they've done the major sin, yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is still referring to them as believers, is still referring to them as believers. A next verse, in Surah Al-Baqarah, Verse 178, Surah Al-Baqarah, verse 178. In this part of the verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَمَنْ عُفِيَ لَهُ مِنْ أَخِيهِ That whoever is pardoned from his brother. Whoever is pardoned from his brother. We'll look at it backwards over here. When he says his brother, is he talking about blood brother over here or brother in faith? Over here, the scholars mention that he's clearly brother in faith, not blood brother. Now what is he being pardoned and forgiven for? for killing someone. So whoever you know, kills someone and the, that individual pardons the blood money, 
and pardons him for that sin, then he's still considered his brother. Like here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that even though the person committed murder, a major sin in Islam, but he's still considered his brother in faith. So this person committed a, a major sin in terms of murder, yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to him as brother in faith. So these are all proofs from the Qur'an that one can see that if an individual was to commit a major sin, then this is not enough to expel them out of the religion. It's not enough to expel them out of the religion. And this is something that's very careful to, to uh, you know, one needs to be very meticulous in understanding this point, because this is like the major difference between the Aqeedah of the Khawarij and the Aqeedah of Ahlul Sunnah. As we'll come to see, the Aqeedah of the Khawarij, one of the fundamental points was that if you were to commit a major sin, then it has taken you outside of the fold of Islam. It has taken you outside of the fold of Islam. Whereas for Ahlul Sunnah, then our stance is that this person is a believer who is deficient in his Iman, who is deficient in his Iman, and is a fasik due to the major sin that he committed. So he's a believer with deficiency, fasik due to the major sin that he committed. Fasik due to the major sin that he committed. Is that clear with everyone? Fantastic. So now we go on to that he goes on to say, to talk about the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Let's just get to the actual verse. He says, فَكُلُّهُمْ يَعْصِي وَذُو الْعَرْشِ يَصْفَحُ وَكُلُّهُمْ يَعْصِي This is based upon the hadith of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam where he says that all of the children of Adam are sinful. كُلُّ بْنِ عَدَمَ خَطَّاءٍ وَخَيْرُ الْخَطَّاءِينَ التَّوَابُونَ That all of the children of Adam, they will commit sin. So this is human nature, that we will commit sin. Now as long as we are committing sin and repenting to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala still loves us for this. And this is subhanAllah so amazing to understand. That yes, we committed a sin, but as long as we followed it up with repentance and seeking forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you will always have the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this just shows the generosity, the mercy, the compassion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So much so that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he says, لَوْ لَمْ تَذْنَبُوا لَذَهَبَ اللَّهُ بِكُمْ وَجَاءَ بِقَوْمٍ يُذْنِبُونَ وَيَسْتَغْفِرُونَ فَيَغْفِرَ لَهُمْ That if you did not sin, and did not seek forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would have brought a people that sinned and did seek forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would have forgave them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would have forgave them. And this shows us how much forgiveness or the act of forgiving is beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that regardless of what sin we may have committed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is always there to forgive us. And this, actually before we move on to that, you know, one important verse to internalize at all times, because this is like the one verse that shaitan wants to make you forget, is the verse in Surah Al-Zumar, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says, Ya ibadi alladheena asrafu ala anfusihim, la taqnatu min rahmatillah, inna Allah yaghfiru dhunuba jami'ah. That all my slaves that have transgressed against themselves, do not despair of the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for Allah forgives all sins. This is in Surah Al-Zumar, verse 53. And this is like a very important verse to understand. Yaghfiru dhunuba jami'ah meaning the minor sins and the major sins over here. And as long as you're seeking forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will always be there to forgive you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will always be there to forgive you. The arsh of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it is the most magnificent of Allah's creations. It is the most magnificent of Allah's creations. From the magnificence of it, 
is that when people are raised on the Day of Judgment, we find Musa السلام, is holding on to one of its pillars, is holding on to one of its pillars. From its magnificence is that it has eight distinct angels that are carrying the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It has eight distinct angels that are carrying the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. From the greatness of the Arsh of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that it is the utmost highest part of Jannah and it is encompassing paradise, it is encompassing paradise. That the Arsh of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that great and that vast. So this is the great Arsh of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you'll find it you know, mentioned many times in the Qur'an. You'll find it mentioned quite a few times in the Qur'an. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to it due to its greatness, due to its greatness. And in fact, you know, in quite a few ayat, as in, in quite a few ad'iyah, the Arsh of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is mentioned as you know, to, 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 to show the greatness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to show the greatness uh, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So like one of those uh, um, adhkar, when you, when you visit a sick person, Asallallahu al-Azim, Rabb al-Arsh al-Kareem, an yashfiyaka. That I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Asallallahu al-Azim, I ask Allah the most great, the most magnificent, Rabb al-Arsh al-Kareem, the Lord of the noble throne, to grant you a cure, to grant you a cure. So here you're asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, by His noble throne, basically mentioning the magnificence of this throne to uh, ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to cure that person, to cure that person. And then we move on to the next verse. And the next, the next verse, وَلَا تَعْتَقِدْ رَأْيَ الْخَوَارِجِ And do not have the opinion of the Khawarij. Do not have the opinion of the Khawarij. So the name entitled Khawarij, it comes from Kharaja, to exit, to leave something. Now, why were they called the Khawarij? The scholars actually differed on two opinions as to why they were called Khawarij. Opinion number one, because they rebelled against Ali radiallahu anhu. They made khuruj against the Khilafah of Ali radiallahu anhu. They exited to rebel against Ali radiallahu anhu. That is opinion number one. Opinion number two, and this seems to be closer uh, in the overall scheme of things, is that they exited from the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. They exited from the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Traits from amongst the Khawarij and their beliefs. From the traits amongst the Khawarij is that these people loved to kill. These people absolutely loved to kill. One of the famous individuals from the Khawarij was um, Najda al-Haruri. Najda al-Haruri. During the time of Ibn Umar radiallahu anhu, when he was coming to the town of Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhu, the people described him for, for, for Abdullah ibn Umar. The first description they gave him is that this man comes to the marketplaces, he kills all of the businessmen, he kills all the people that are doing business, and he kills the women and the children. He kills the women and the children. Meaning that he feels no shyness from killing people. He feels no shyness from killing people. Right? Number two is that these people have blatant contradictions in their faith. Blatant contradictions in their faith. That they will say that whoever commits a major sin has exited the fold of Islam. And these are the people that will fast all day, they will pray all night, and they will recite the Qur'an at all times. This is the description that Ali radiallahu anhu gave the people as they're about to go into the battlefield. That do not be deceived by their praying, by their fasting, and by the recitation of the Qur'an. Because their worship, their recitation of the Qur'an doesn't go past their throats, right? Where is the apparent contradiction in their faith? That while they show this extreme dedication to their faith, they have no problem falling into this major sin 
of killing people for absolutely no reason. Killing people for absolutely no reason. Killing to them was something so minor and so little. And that is where the apparent contradiction is. And this is something that you, know, you can establish as a general guideline that the, the, the methodology and the creed of Ahlul Sunnah, it is pure and you will never find any contradictions in it. Whereas the methodology and the creed of the people of innovation is that even if you can't see it, know for a fact there has to be a contradiction in it. Because if there wasn't a contradiction, it would have been the creed of Ahlul Sunnah. It would have been the creed of Ahlul Sunnah. And this is one of the principles that you can use against them. Now from their fundamental beliefs is that anyone that committed a major sin, then this would expel him outside the fold of Islam. This would expel him outside the fold of Islam. What was more general than this? So the general, you know, uh, I guess uh, manifestation of this is that if you commit a major sin, then you're outside the fold of Islam. But the greater understanding of this issue is they believed that Iman was only one thing. That Iman did not fluctuate. Iman did not go up, it did not go down. And Iman was not different parts, but Iman was just one thing. Either you had Iman or you didn't have Iman. There's no middle grounds of weak Iman and high Iman according to them. So that is the, the, the basis of this belief of theirs, that if you commit a major sin, that you're outside the fold of Islam. That you're outside the fold of Islam. Who agreed with them in theory, but not in name? Sorry, who agreed with them in reality, but not in name? The Mu'tazila. The Mu'tazila. The Mu'tazila, they said that anyone that commits a major sin, then he's no longer a believer, but he's not a disbeliever as well. He's not a disbeliever as well, but he will still be in the hellfire forever. He will still be in the hellfire forever. And they call this manzila bayna manzilatain. That this is a station between two stations. Where in reality it's just one station. The only thing they refuse to do is call him a kafir. But in the reality is that he will be in the hellfire forever. The reality is in the hellfire forever. Now I want you to think about this logically. What is worse, giving him the title of kafir? Or letting him know that you'll be in the hellfire forever? Obviously the latter is much much worse. Right? So they're playing with semantics over here, where they said that he will be in the hellfire forever, he is not a believer, but the only thing we're not going to do is call him a disbeliever. We're going to be polite about it. You're going to be in a station between these two stations, but basically you have the same consequence and punishment as the people of the hellfire. The same punishment as the people of the hellfire. Now, the people of innovation. One of the titles they're also given is the people of desires. They're given the title, the people of desires. Why are they given this title? Based upon this hadith, where the Prophet وسلم, he says, And this is narrated by Ibn Abi Asim, hadith number 69. Ibn Abi Asim, hadith number 69, and authenticated by Shaykh Albani rahimahullah ta'ala. So he says that this ummah will be divided into 73 sects based upon their desires, based upon their desires. Now why are they called the people of desires? Because they have left the Quran and the Sunnah, and they've used in their own desires to interpret the religion. They've used their own desires to interpret their religion. So whatever they found befitting, they accepted. Whatever they didn't find befitting, they rejected. Whereas Ahlul Sunnah, when they approach the Qur'an and the Sunnah, they accept it even if it goes against their own desires. Right? They accept the Qur'an and Sunnah even if it goes against their own desires. Even if it goes against their own desires. Now, moving on to the next group that the author mentions. وَلَا مُرْجِيًا Where does Murji come from? Murji comes from the word irja. Murji comes from the word irja, 
which linguistically means to delay something, which linguistically means to delay something. And what are they delaying over here? They have delayed actions from Iman. They have said that actions are not a part of Iman. And you'll notice that the wording that the author uses over here is that these people are just playing with their deen altogether. They're playing with their deen altogether. Why does he call them people that joke and jest with their deen? Because they've opened up the door for sin without accountability. That as long as you have your faith, and you'll see that they, divide, they were divided in terms of what even constitutes faith, as long as you've met that minimum requirement of faith, you can do whatever you want and you will never leave the fold of Islam and you will never be sinful whatsoever. You will never be sinful whatsoever. So their fundamental belief was, again, that no matter what you sin you do, then you, this will not harm your Iman. What was the bigger picture? Again, they did not consider actions as a part of Iman. Therefore, there was nothing to cause Iman to fluctuate. So Iman was just one thing to them as well. Iman was just one thing to them as well. Now what was their definition of Iman? What was their definition of Iman? From amongst them, they had four main differences in terms of their definition, meaning that there are four different groups in terms of what they considered Iman. The first group said, it is Al-Ma'rifah. It is to know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Meaning that as long as you know there is an Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then you are a believer. Who can tell me one of the negative ramifications of this belief? That if you believe that belief is just ma'rifah, the knowing of the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What is one of the evil ramifications of this? Quraysh become believers, but bigger than Quraysh. Who else becomes a believer? Fir'aun, bigger than Fir'aun. Iblis becomes a believer, right? Iblis, he recognizes the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In Surah Al-Hashr, what does he say? Inni Allah, Rabbil Alameen. That he says, I'm free from you because I fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So by this definition, if you just say that it is ma'rifatu wujudillah, then this makes Iblis, Fir'aun, and you know, the Quraysh, and every other disbeliever, except for the atheist believers. Except for the atheist believers, right? Second group. They said, Mujarrad at-Tasdiq. Mujarrad at-Tasdiq. That's simply affirming Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Simply affirming that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has the right to be worshipped. Right? So you say that Allah is an ilah. Whether you worship Him or not is of no relevance. As long as you recognize that He is worthy of being worshipped. Right? Then again, you will notice that the same similar groups are entered into the fold of Islam. Iblis, Quraysh, all these people, they're entered into the fold of Islam. Group number three, Mujarrad and nutq That all you have to do is say the shahada without even believing in it. If, as long as you say the shahada, even if you don't believe in it, then you will be entered into Islam. And this is like, you know, what we'll call like modern day irja. Like by modern day irja, what we mean is, you'll have Muslims that they'll say the shahada and they'll commit every sin under the sun. And they're like, you know, I'm still a believer. I don't pray, I don't fast, I don't give my zakat. You know, Alhamdulillah, I still eat the biha meat though, and I drink alcohol and do all of these sins, but I'm still a believer. Then we say, this is mujarrad an-nutq, that yes, you may have said the shahada, but that's not enough to keep you within the fold of Islam. It's not enough to keep you within the fold of Islam. Then we have group number four, and this is the closest group to Ahl-Sunnah. This is the closest group to Ahl-Sunnah from the Murjiyah. Mujarrad an-nutq wal-i'atiqad. Mujarrad an-nutq wal-i'atiqad. That you just need to have the statement and the belief. Statement and the belief internally. Statement and belief internally, and this is enough to keep you within the fold of Islam. As you'll come to see during the next set of verses, 
The belief of Ahlul Sunnah and Iman is that Iman consists of three things. Statements, beliefs, and actions. So what they're missing over here is the actions themselves. Is the actions themselves. Now, there is a group called Murjiyatul Fuqaha. There is a group called Murjiyatul Fuqaha. And these were the great scholars of the Hanafi Madhab. These were the great scholars of the Hanafi Madhab. Where in theory, they used to say that actions were not a part of Iman. In theory, they would say that actions are not a part of Iman. But in reality, when you look at their books of fiqh in, you know, uh, Bab al-Ridda, the, the chapter of apostasy, they would mention that a person was to leave off such and such deed, he would become a disbeliever. Or if he was to commit such and such sin, he would become such and such disbeliever. He would become a disbeliever. So what the scholars, and this is like a, a, you know, a reconciling approach, a, a approach of husn al-dhan with them, is that the difference between Ahl-Sunnah and the Murjiyatul Fuqaha was a, a discrepancy of semantics. Meaning that yes, the titles differed, but the reality wasn't in the same. They considered actions a part of Iman, even though according to their theory, they did not. According to their theory, they did not. So that is who the Murjiyah were. They said that actions were not a part of Iman. Actions were not a part of Iman. And this leads us into, what is the definition of Ahl-Sunnah when it comes to Iman? And what is the ramification of that definition? What is the ramification of that definition? So the belief of Ahlul Sunnah when it comes to Iman is that Iman consists of three things. And he mentions it over here. إِنَّمَا الْإِيمَانُ قَوْلٌ وَنِيَّةٌ وَفِعْلٌ So it is three things. Iman consists of statements, intentions, and actions. Statements, intentions, and actions. Now, this will further be broken down. This will further be broken down. In terms of statements, there are two types of statements. There are statements of the tongue and statements of the heart. Okay, so just make brief notes of this. Statements of the tongue and statements of the heart. Okay, what is statement of the tongue and what is statement of the heart? Statement of the tongue is of two types. That which is foundational and that which is secondary. That which is foundational and that which is secondary. Foundational statement of the tongue is a testification of Ashhadu la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah. This is the foundational statement. That with this foundational statement, everything else is built upon it. Everything else is built upon it. Then secondary statements of the tongue, they are making dhikr, the recitation of the Quran, speaking words of goodness and kindness. So this is al-qawl bil-lisan. Now, what is the qawl of the qalb? What is the qawl of the qalb? The qawl of the qalb, is when the heart makes an intention to do something good. When the heart makes an intention to do something good. This is the intention, this is the statement of the heart. So what is common practice, that time for Salah comes, and people will verbalize, they will orate their intention for Salah. I'm about to pray four rakahs of Salat al-Dhuhr, facing the Qibla, behind the Imam, and this happens in multiple languages, right? This is not actually from the Sunnah. This is not from the Sunnah. Your intention stays inside of your heart. Your intention stays inside of your heart. So when your heart makes an intention to do an act of goodness, this is considered a statement of the heart. This is considered a statement of the heart. Then number two, we have actions. We have actions. Actions are also of two types. Actions of the limbs and actions of the heart. Actions of the limbs and actions of the heart. Actions of the limbs, very simple. Praying, fasting, giving zakah, keeping good ties of relationship, right? These are all actions of the limbs. Actions of the heart. 
Things like fear of Allah, things like love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, things like tawakkul on Allah, right? These are all actions of the heart. These are all actions of the heart. Then we move on to the last point, which is al-i'tiqad, which is the correct set of beliefs, which is the correct set of beliefs. Meaning that Allah is one, that He is the only one worthy of worship. He has no father, He has no son, right? These are the correct set of beliefs. Now in order for someone to become a believer, all three of these categories need to be brought together. You can't just have faith without actions and statements. You can't have actions without statement and belief. Nor can you have statements without actions and faith. Nor can you have statements without actions and faith. And you'll notice that this is what will differentiate the three categories that we were speaking about. Nifaq, Kufr, and Shirk. So an individual that has actions without pure intention, then this person has fallen into Nifaq, right? An individual that has actions but without pure aqidah, without pure etiqad, then he has fallen into shirk over here, right? And a person that has neither of the three or falls short in either statements or actions or beliefs has fallen into kufr. That is the relationship between the three. That is the relationship between the three. Now that was like a brief summary of everything I wanted to say. Because I know that we're quite short on time. It's 9.45. And the Iqam is at 10.10 insha'Allah. So we have about you know, 25 minutes to get through the next three lines. So that in summary is the belief of Ahlul Sunnah when it comes to Iman. Now, what I want to go through with you is what proofs can we find from the Qur'an and Sunnah that indicate that actions are a part of Iman? What proof can we find from the Qur'an and the Sunnah that actions are a part of Iman? Let's start off with hadith number one. Let's start off with hadith number one. This hadith is found in Bukhari, hadith number nine, and Muslim, hadith number 35. Bukhari, hadith number nine, Muslim, hadith number 35. The hadith of Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu where he says, Al-Imanu bid'un wa sab'una shu'ba fa'alaha qawlu la ilaha illallah wa adnaha imatutul adha anil tariq wal hayau shu'batun min al-Iman. Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu narrates that Iman is 77 odd branches. Its highest point is the statement of La ilaha illallah. Its lowest point is removing something harmful from the path and modesty and shyness is a branch of Iman. Modesty and shyness is a branch of Iman. The first thing that we over learn over here is that Iman is not one. That Iman is multiple parts. Sub, you know, some 70 odd parts to it according to the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu In other hadith it was 60 odd parts. But, you know, that we can leave for another time. But, but the point we want to get at is that it is not one, it is fluctuate. There is has a high point and it has a low point. What is the high point of Iman? It is the statement of La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. When he says its high point is a statement of La ilaha illallah, does this mean the statement alone? No, it doesn't. It means the belief that comes along with it, the actions that come along with it, that is the highest point. What does the highest point mean to over here? Meaning the thing that will save you from the hellfire, the things that will be the greatest cause of you being forgiven for your sins, is the statement of La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah, meaning having tawheed with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So here we see action of the tongue right away. Number two, the lowest form of iman is imatutul adha, removing something harmful from the, from the path. This is a physical action. This is a physical action. And this is the lowest form of Iman, to remove something harmful from the path. And then the third thing he mentions, وَالْحَيَاءُ شُعْبَةٌ مِنْ الْإِيمَانِ And modesty and shyness 
is from the branches of faith. And modesty is something that stems from the heart, meaning that true modesty is not seen on the limbs. It manifests itself on the limbs, but true modesty actually takes place in the heart, where one creates a barrier between himself or herself and disobedience of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is what modesty actually is. That is what modesty actually is. Another hadith we want to look at, and this is perhaps the most explicit hadith in two fronts. Number one, actions being a part of Iman. And number two, Salah being Iman. Salah being Iman. Okay? So this is the hadith of uh, Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah. And it's called the hadith of Wafd Bani Abdul Qais. Hadith Wafd Bani Abdul Qais. So a tribe known as Abdul Qais came to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa And this hadith is found in Bukhari hadith number 53. And in Muslim, hadith number 18. Bukhari, hadith number 53. And in Muslim, hadith number 18. He says, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Amurukum bi'arba' Al-Imanu billah Wa hal tadruna mal-Imanu billah Shahadatu an la ilaha illallah Wa iqamis salah Wa ita'iz zakah Wa sawmu ramadhan Wa an ta'atu min al-maghanimi al-khumas Wa an ta'atu min al-maghanimi al-khumas so the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he says, I command you with four things. I command you with four things. Number one, Al-Iman in Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. Having Iman in Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. Then he asks them, do you know what Iman in Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala is? And then he answered it for them. And he mentions, it is the Shahada, meaning an action of the tongue. Saying, Ashhadu la ilaha illallah, wa ashhadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah. It is to establish the prayer. So Salah is from Iman. Salah is from Iman. It is to give the Zakah. It is to fast Ramadan. And if you were to do these things, then you would be given from the spoils of war when the Muslims get the spoils of war. You would be given from the spoils of war when the Muslims get from the spoils of war. Excuse me. So this was explicit in two fronts. One, that actions are a part of Iman. Then the different type of actions that are a part of Iman. The statement of the tongue, the statement of the limbs, and that Salah is from Iman. That Salah is literally called Iman in this hadith. Salah is literally called Iman in this hadith. Now, what we want to get into. Does Iman increase and decrease according to Ahl-Sunnah? And the answer to that is yes. Once Ahl-Sunnah considers actions a part of Iman, then based upon your actions, your Iman will actually fluctuate. Uh, uh, it will increase or decrease. It will increase or decrease. And what I want to share with you is one of the statements of the companions anhu, pertaining to this. His name was Umair ibn Habib al-Khatami. Umair ibn Habib al-Khatami. Anhu qal, al-Imanu yazidu wa yamkus. Qila wa ma ziyadatuhu wa ma nuqsanuhu. Qala idha dhakarna Allah wa hamidnahu wa sabihnahu fatilka ziyadatuhu. Wa in ghafalna wa nasina fadhalika nuqsanuhu. So Umair ibn Habib, he says, Iman increases and decreases. It was said to him, what is the increase of Iman and what is the decrease of Iman? He said that if you were to remember Allah, to praise Him and to make tasbih of Him, then this is the increase of Iman. And if we were to become heedless and to forget, then that is the decrease of Iman. That is the decrease of Iman. So here we have from, the, from a Sahabi, Mentioning the increase and decrease of Iman. An increase and decrease of Iman. So this is how they understood that. As a person did more good deeds, the more their Iman would increase. The more bad deeds that he did, or the more he forgot Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then the more his Iman would decrease. The more his Iman would decrease. What you find in the Quran is in multiple places, 
that Iman increases. Iman increases, right? Let's test our Hufad here. Give me one ayah each where the increasement of Iman is mentioned. Give me the verse. Liyazdadu Iman. Fantastic. Munib. Fantastic. So you'll find it about seven or eight times in the Quran where an increase in Iman is mentioned. Now it is foolish to think that if an increase in Iman is mentioned, you know, does that mean that Iman only increases and it doesn't decrease? The answer to that is no. Iman increases and decreases. Just because it's not found specifically in the Quran, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. We find in the hadith very explicitly that whoever sees, uh, whoever from amongst you sees an evil deed, let, he, let him change it with his hand. If he's unable to, then with his tongue. If he's unable to, then let him hate it with his heart. iman. That is from the weakest forms of Iman. So that shows that Iman, that Iman does get weak. That Iman does get weak. So now in this section, we cover two main components of the Aqidah of Ahl sunnah that Iman is statements and actions and beliefs, and that it increases and decreases. And this is what differentiates it from the different groups. This is what differentiates it from the different groups. Now we move on to the second uh, to last part, which is now the, the poet he gets into what is knowledge, and what should not be considered knowledge? What is knowledge and what should not be considered knowledge? If you remember the very first halaqa that we did, we talked about the, the methodology of Ahl sunnah in affirming Aqidah, in affirming Aqidah. And one of the first things we mentioned are what are the sources of knowledge when it comes to Aqidah. So for the believer, it is the Qur'an, Sunnah and Ijma'. These are the sources of knowledge when it comes to Aqidah. This is the only thing that we can affirm Aqidah with, right? And what the author is mentioning over here is that when it comes to your deen, there's no room for opinions of different people. There's no room for opinions of different people. And you'll find that similar statements were made by other great Imams. From them was Ibn al-Qayyim, from them was Imam al-Zahabi. Uh, Imam al-Zahabi, he has a, a nice line where he says, um, that he says knowledge is what Allah said, what the messenger said, and what the Sahaba said, and it is not something that is, is hidden. And it is from foolishness to think that one can have knowledge in differing with the opinion of what Allah's messenger or what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said. So knowledge consists of these three things. Then Ibn Qayyim in his Nuniyah, he has a nice line as well where he says, What's the verse, man? He says that ignorance is a deadly disease whose cure is found in two things that are similar in their composition, that are similar in their composition. Either a verse from the Quran or a hadith of the Prophet and the one that cures this sickness and illness is the righteous scholar, is the, the righteous nurturing scholar. So these are statements of the scholars about what knowledge actually is. Now it's very important to internalize this, right? That a lot of the times when we're having discussions with people, people will say, this scholar said that, or my imam said that, or such and such individual said that. Whereas when it comes to our deen, it has to be explicitly, here's a verse from the Qur'an, here's a hadith of the Prophet here's the understanding of the companions. This is ultimate proof. 
Everything else is subject to being weighed and judged based upon these three things. It's subject to being weighed and judged based upon these three things. Now I want to share with you some of the narrations of the predecessors on this. The first one is Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu. And this is very, like, you know, it suits Umar ibn Khattab's personality. He says, إِيَّاكُمْ وَأَصْحَابُ الرَّأِي فَإِنَّهُمْ أَعْدَاءَ الدِّينَ آيَتُهُمْ السُنَّةِ أَنْ يَحْفَظُوهَا وَأَفَعْمَلُوا أَقُولَهُمْ That he says, I warn you against the people of just opinion, meaning that they leave the text of the Qur'an and Sunnah. There's nothing wrong with having an opinion based upon the Qur'an and the Sunnah, but people that, j base, that just build an opinion without the Qur'an and the Sunnah. For these people are the enemies of the religion, and it is upon them to return back to the Sunnah and preserve it. For that is what will cause their minds to work again. That is what will cause their minds to work again. Meaning that the Ashab al-Ra'i, they, they've lost their minds completely. Then you have Ali radiallahu anhu. He says, لو كان الدين يؤخذ بالرأي فكان مسح باطن الخوف أولى من مسح الظاهره. That he says, if this religion was based merely upon opinion and mere intellect, then one would wipe the bottom of one's socks rather than the top of it, rather than the top of it. And this is to show again that you know there is a place for intellect in our in our religion. But it has a limit to it. And then what takes over is the text of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Is the text of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Imam al-Awza'i, he says, عَلَيْكَ بِالْآثَارِ وَإِنْ رَفَضَكَ النَّاسِ وَإِيَّاكَ وَأَرَاءِ الرِّجَالِ فَإِنْ زَخْرَفُهُ بِالْقَوْلِ فَإِنَّ الْأَمْرَ يَنْجَلِي وَأَنْتَ عَلَى طُرِيكَ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ He says, it is upon you to follow the narrations of the people of the past, even if the people abandon you. And I warn you against the opinions of men, even if they beautify it with their speech, for indeed this affair is clear, and you are upon the straight path, and you are treading the straight path. So the straight path is the narrations of the people of the past. And the last, you know, narration I want to leave you with over here is the statement of Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhuma, where he says, um, what did Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhuma say? There's so much that going on in my head right now, that's why I'm forgetting everything, subhanAllah. Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhuma, he says that this deen will never be known by the way of men. This deen will never be known by the way of men. Or sorry, the truth will never be known by the way of men. But know the truth and you will know its people. Know the truth and you will know its people. What does this statement mean? That if you were to ask the people what is the truth, each and every individual will have their own version and definition of the truth. But up and until you know what the truth is from an objective point of view, you will never know who the truthful people are or who the people of truth are. The objective point of view of the truth is the Quran, Sunnah, and the agreed upon statements of the companions. The agreed upon statements of the companions, right? Then he goes on to say, and as long as you stick to this methodology of basing your opinion upon the Qur'an and the Sunnah, and not just based upon intellect or the statements of the people, then you will be pure and your chest will be expanded. Whereas if you don't, your chest will always be congested by the statements of opinion. Likewise, do not be of those people that play with their religion. Do not be like those people that play with their religion. And they criticize and they disparage the people of hadith. Why does he mention the people of hadith over here? The scholars of the past, they used to consider the term Ahlul Hadith synonymous with Ahlul Sunnah. And they used to consider Ahlul Hadith synonymous with the Firqatul Najiyah. So the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he says that all of the sects will be in the hellfire except for one. Imam Ahmad when he commented on this, he said that if they are not the people of hadith, I do not know who they are. If they are not the people of hadith, I do not know who they are. So what he's saying over here 
is that when one of the signs of deviation is a mockery of Ahlul Sunnah, is that they will make fun of Ahlul Sunnah and will call them names. Right? So, this is something to be aware of that if you don't stick to the way of the Quran and the Sunnah, this will lead you to abandoning the people of the Sunnah and mocking them. A second thing we learn from this is that mocking people is not the way of Ahlul Sunnah, it is the way of Ahlul Bidah. Right? So when you find yourself constantly mocking other groups and constantly mocking other people, then know that this is not the way of Ahl Sunnah. Ahl Sunnah does not mock people, it does not mock groups, but rather it refutes ideas. That is what we do. We don't mock individuals, we refute ideas. We don't discuss people, we refute the, 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 the theories that they stand for. Right? It's easy to make fun of someone. It's easy to character assassinate someone. What is difficult is to discuss the ideas that they come with and to refute them. And that is one of the distinguishing signs of Ahl Sunnah is that we don't care about the individual, we care about the idea that they stand for. We care about the idea that they stand for. And now, alhamdulillah, we move on to the last part with, you know, 10 minutes left. Where he goes on to say, that if you were to hold this belief all of your life, then by the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you will go to sleep and wake up upon goodness. You'll go to sleep and wake up upon goodness. Now alhamdulillah, you know, this is the, the conclusion of the poem. And to summarize this very point, is that people need to understand the severity of aqidah. You know, your aqidah is the most precious thing that you own. What differentiates us from a Christian, from an atheist, from any disbeliever, is our internal beliefs itself. Right? Because they will pray, we will pray. They will fast, we will fast. They will give acts of charity, we will give charity as well. But what will differentiate us is our beliefs. And that is why it is of the utmost importance that Muslims pay attention to their beliefs. If you look at the books of the past, you'll notice that Sahih al-Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, they all have chapters on belief. Kitab al-Tahid is there, Kitab al-Iman is there. These are chapters of belief. If you look at the first 13 years of revelation in the Quran, all of it is discussing belief. And this is to show that an individual without belief is on very dangerous territory. That if you try to implement Islam without having the correct set of beliefs, it is feared that either your actions will not be accepted or that naturally you will burn out. Naturally, you will burn out. So in order to retain your Iman, in order for your Iman to increase, not only do you need those actions, but you need the correct set of beliefs. Correct set of beliefs in Allah, correct set of beliefs in the angels, correct set of beliefs in the Day of Judgment, correct set of beliefs in Qadr, correct set of beliefs in everything that is considered from Iman, right? And hopefully, this is what that poem did. Hopefully this is what that poem did. So altogether there were 33 verses and we went through the major components of our Aqidah very briefly, but it's worthwhile, you know, repeating this poem you know, from end to end, it's very short. Altogether, we did it in nine classes. You know, if you skip through some of the parts, you could probably do it in like six classes. So whenever you're skipping through YouTube, but it's very good to go back to it from time to time. And it is my intention, inshallah ta'ala, that, you know, as long as, you know, I, I'm at the, the, this musalla and here in Calgary, every once in a while, at least maybe once a year, we'll try to go through a, a poem or a text in Aqidah just to keep refreshing our beliefs, just to keep refreshing our beliefs. Because it does us a lot of good. When you understand Qadr and how it's there to protect you and protect your feelings and Allah has your best interests in mind, it helps us deal with our calamities a lot easier. When we understand the role of the angels and how they're there to help us and write down our good deeds, and you know how they're here, there to implement the law of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It helps us when you understand the role of the Day of Judgment and how our deeds are will be weighed and on how you know, the statement of La ilaha illallah will be heavier than anything else. 
right? All of this helps us. When we learn that on the Day of Judgment, Allah will hold the oppressors and transgressors to account. It brings us relief that any oppression or injustice that takes place in the world, Allah is taking care of it, right? All of these things are there to make us better individuals and to make us and make it easier for us to focus again on focus on worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So anything that I've said during this time that was correct is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone and all praise is due to Him. Anything that I've said that was incorrect uh, is from myself and from shaitan and I seek forgiveness for myself and for all of you that attended. Jazakumullah khairan for all of you that attended during these uh, nine sessions. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes it heavy on our scale of good deeds, that Allah forgives us for our sins, that Allah makes it of those people that are entered into Al-Firdaus, those people that are blessed with the shafa of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, those people that are forgiven for their small of sins and the big of them, those people that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala conceals their sins in this life and the next, and those individuals that are given to drink from the hawd of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam by his own hand. Allahumma ameen. وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم